Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we're joined by Aaron Plant, who is uh, Head of Investigations and Special Projects at Chainalysis, uh, one of the leading blockchain forensics firms. How are you doing, Aaron? Hi, Matt. I'm doing well. It's nice Great. to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation with you. Um, first of all, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, usually I like to do a little bit of research on people who I might not know too much about. Um, so I went to the web and I am trying to find info on Aaron Plant. And man, you have been really good at basically having no presence on the web uh, <laughs> for a very long time. And um, I was curious, just as a as somebody in cybersecurity and, and, you know, forensics, is that's that's something that is not a mis- uh, that's not a coincidence, right? It is very intentional. <laughs> I, I spent 12 years of my career based in China, uh, the Middle East and Africa working on cybersecurity threats and some parts of that work you didn't want to have your name known or your or any sort of presence on on the web, particularly yeah. in China. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, is there any hope for for the rest of us, or is just humanity done with that? Or <laughs> you know, what do you um do you give do you give advice to anybody who wants to kind of you know have a lighter web presence than than not? I I do think having a web presence makes you potentially more of a target, but in this day and age, it's very difficult to not have any kind of web presence. I, I think about my, my kids and trying to minimize their time on the web and what they're putting out there now, even as young children. Um, and it's, it's so difficult to do that. So my, my advice to my, to my mom and some of the the people who are less familiar with technology is just don't click on anything in an email ever. <laughs> <laughs> great, great advice. You can protect yourself from a lot of things if you just don't click on any links. Yeah, for anything. sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I just discovered a new email my 13-year-old son has and, you know, had no idea and just like, okay, well, um, it, it, yeah, the, this, the horse is out, out of the barn on that one for sure. Um, I was wondering, uh, if we could just kind of go back and, and, um, learn a little bit about you. Um, where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. I, I grew up in New Hampshire in a small town and I went to college at the university of Colorado and studied computer science. So it was there that I started to get into technology and computers. This was back in, I started college in 2000. So it was very early days in technology. Yeah. Uh, programming was a very different world back then. Cybersecurity was a very different world back then. I worked for a 
a, a telecom company called Level 3 Communications as an intern when I was in college. And they, at the time, were, were somewhat um, famous in the technology space for having the first upgradable fiber optic network, which is kind of funny to think back on that now, but they had undersea cables and they had subterranean um, pipes and we would sit in the network operations center and watch these little robots drag new fibers through these these tunnels and that's how they upgraded the network wow so. that's amazing is that the for now in the world of 5g but <laughs> that's how we did it back then is that the connection between um like north america and europe Exactly. Yeah. So level three owned the first um, connection between North America and Europe, and it was the first fiber optic network. And yeah. we would we would watch thought, watch the fibers get dragged across yeah. between the continents. How cool. It was pretty amazing at the time. What, what were you like as a kid? Did you always like computers or science or what? Um, what was your childhood like? I've always been. Um, I've always been a math science person, so I've always been really more interested in, in maths and sciences. I'm not great at writing papers and I've never been very artistic, um, but I didn't spend a lot of time on computers. You know, as a kid, computers weren't really around. <laughs> so and we, we got our first computer when I was in when I was in high school and, you know, it was still on my on DOS and you had a DOS prompt and you could play Tetris. but. Um, I was very, very interested in, um, yeah, in math and science generally, and then getting into college computers was the, you know, it was a newer option in the science, science space. And it just, yeah, it drew me and I've been very interested ever since. Yeah. Um, and then once you got into computer science, did, did you, did security kind of leap out at you as something that was interesting or did how did you did you have a longer route to that or how did that come about no network security was immediately something that was really interesting to me so i've, I've always been very interested in um kind of policy and um international relations and i wanted to major in in that um but i was encouraged by other people in my life to stick with computer science and the network security, cybersecurity space brought the two together, brought the, the ability to look internationally and um, policy and international relationships, but also the technology component of computer science. And is there a um, kind of good guy, bad guy element to it that appeals to you as well? There is, yeah. There's there's very much a good guy, bad guy element. I think it's um, protecting new innovations is a huge passion area for me. So back in 2000, it was just the internet <laughs> and the ability to message and send money and do anything digitally was new. And it was the dot-com boom at that time. So all, all of the new innovations that came along with, with the dot-com boom and cyber as a whole was uh, is definitely an area of passion for me. And then over over the years in this space, you know, working with emerging ephemeral messaging platforms and um, money transfer programs, you know, WeChat Pay and M-Pesa in Kenya and all of those, those things, and then leading up to, to cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, so am I correct in your resume that 
you went to China first, uh, sort of over, <clears throat> as your first overseas sort of work experience? I did, yeah. I moved to China in 2011. Okay. And, and what were you yeah. doing there? So I, I moved there working with cyber with a cybersecurity company, and uh, we were investigating the digital corruption payments that were happening. So we were working with the U.S. government as well as other governments, investigating international businesses that were operating in China and the way that they were potentially paying uh, paying bribes to the government officials in China, and that those payments of bribes used to be handing over a duffel bag of cash and it has morphed <laughs> um, in that time to digital payments. So looking at payment fingerprints and trails and, and following the money to, to be able to identify that is, is really important yeah. and increasingly difficult. Yeah. So let's get into that. Like, what would you actually do to try to uncover, you know, if some, if some, executive at a, at a Western firm or whatever is, is taking bribes or, or is bribing uh, Chinese officials. Like, how do you, how do you get on that trail and how do you, um, you know, go about that investigation? Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the U S there's a law called the Foreign Corruption Practices Act. And in the UK, it's called the Anti-Bribery Act. And it's essentially saying that as a Western business, a uh, business in the U S or in the UK, you cannot pay bribes to foreign government officials. And it, in the US, it's the Department of Justice or the SEC that launches an investigation that looks into these allegations. They're, they're very difficult to, to investigate in places like China because the payments are increasingly happening in these um, behind the Chinese firewall electronic systems. And they're not sitting out there in a, in a place that anyone can get into and investigate. So we would do on the ground investigations within their electronic network. So um, in order for evidence to not be destroyed in the, in the course of our investigation, we would usually be operating overnight under um, the cover that we were doing IT upgrades or we were doing something on their network like changing out internet cables. <laughs> um, but really we would, we would spend the nights uh, copying hard drives, forensically imaging hard drives, forensically imaging any, any device that was, that was there. And then we would sift through the evidence. We would map out the network um, connections that were outside of that business as well ultimately looking for, for payments. As this was, I started there in 2011, cell phones became, you know, smartphones became increasingly important over the time. So then it was looking at emerging payment apps. You know, WeChat Pay is a big, is a big way that, that payments are made now, as well as some of the, the Chinese digital payment systems. And um, in the early days, it was really sort of the, the, the wild west in a way of, of tackling cyber related corruption and cyber related communication. Um, it, as the, as my time there increased, it became more and more complicated. <laughs> the good, the Chinese government was more and more aware what we were doing, why we were there. Yeah. Um, businesses became more and more aware of what we would do, uh, what we were doing and why we were there. We would get into businesses and find network cables cut. We would get into 
um, businesses and find um, servers broken, you know, wow. inadvertently, they've been <laughs> accidentally smashed by something during the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, just happened uh, just a couple hours ago. Yeah, um, just a couple hours ago, you know, someone knocked it over. <laughs> so how, how many uh, in, in this, in these investigations, how, how often did you have the, um, the blessing of the company itself? Like, were, were you working for the company? Like, did they know, and they were trying to help you figure out if some of their employees were, um, you know, giving bribes or was this like, like you're working for the government and you're kind of like, you got to keep your cover and you're going in and, and just sort of like, you know, as a third party um, to this, this company that you're investigating. It was, it was a mix. Um, when it was a government investigation um, and we were working with, with some kind of government protection, the, the companies didn't always know, um, but there were legal, legal, um, legal people involved. Um, it was often also the case where it was a, you know, relatively prominent business in the U.S. or the U.K., and they were trying to root out the corruption as part of a, a government inquiry into, into what was happening. So it's no surprise that a lot of um, particularly manufacturing businesses build a lot of what's built in China, um, or at least, you know, did back then before things moved into to other places. And the, the need to root out the corruption was, was important for them. So it was a mix. And, and how widespread was this kind of bribery in China at the time? Or, or and is it, has it changed as you're aware uh, to today? It, it's, at the time, it was very widespread. So bribery was was very widespread. Uh, it's hard to say if it's changed too much. Um, it's still just a course of doing business, and there is a level of it's it's some level of of payment making grease payments is allowed under these laws, but they do need to be documented. It can't be hidden. Um, there are some very prominent. Um, Foreign Corrupt Practice Act investigations that took place in China that were pretty significant for the government to, to undertake. Um, one of those is a big gambling company, um, Las Vegas Sands. They operate a lot of the gambling that occurs in Macau, yeah. which is part of China. They do, um, at the time, we were told they do seven times as much business as Las Vegas. Wow. And it's one casino that operates there. So if you can think really? of the scale of money that flows through <laughs> that one casino in Macau, it's pretty astounding. There was a, a multi-year FCPA investigation that occurred there with, um, with the U.S. government leading that. That's amazing. Uh, all of Vegas, seven times as big, but one casino. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So when you go in and like now you're inside the internal systems of these you know companies, wouldn't you leave like tracks or how did you like make sure that you know they didn't figure out the next morning like oh my god they just imaged everything on our system? Yeah, so that's that's partly what made it more and more difficult for us to do this work. So we would use specialized equipment um, to not leave tracks on their network. 
And one of those tools is called a write blocker. There are other specialized cables and things that are used, but a write blocker is exactly what it's described as. Um, it prevents the writing of any kind of activity done on a network to the network itself. So you connect to the network or the device via a write blocker. And if you're a network administrator logging in in the morning, you aren't able to see any activity that occurred during that time. Wow. These devices, were the Chinese officials would spot them in your bags when you were going through security. You can't buy them in China. So we would have to bring them in from Hong Kong or other places that we were flying in from. They would see them in your bag. You could, you could expect a day <laughs> in detention at the airport explaining why you had this, <laughs> why you have this other equipment. Um, what would you say? <laughs> I, I was usually, um, I, I had a whole bunch of different stories. Um, they, they would spot things like um, we would bring in these specialized um, screwdrivers that take off components of the, of the computer. And I used to say I made jewelry. <laughs> that was how I, I made jewelry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can get away with that as a female. Right, right. <laughs> so I, would, I would explain away my, my screwdrivers um, with that sense. Um, the right blockers, I, you had a harder time explaining. And I usually just acted as I had no information. I was just a, a, a secretary asked to do a task. I have no idea what it's about. Um, playing dumb. <laughs> um, but you, the more I lived there and more I operated in this space, it became harder to do that. So you can kind of get away with it once or twice. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask. Did, did, they must have gotten onto you at some point. Did, did you ever feel like yeah. you were being followed or surveilled or anything like that? I think our communications were definitely surveilled the whole time we were we were living there. Um, I lived there for, for many years. So I, I do think the whole time that we were operating in the country, mm -hmm. um, we were, and I think that's normal for um, Westerners doing any kind of business in China anyways, um, but more so for anybody dealing, dealing in this space. Wow. So had, um, by the end of your time in China, your first um, stay there, had crypto sort of come about yet or were, were payments starting to move uh, to cryptocurrencies or was it still just kind of digital money moving on we we pay or whatever we chat yeah not yet so my first time there was 2011 to 2014 okay. and i i from then I moved to Africa and I was largely working in the Middle East and Northern Africa. When I moved back the second time in 2018 is when cryptocurrency started to emerge. We saw cyber threats emerge like North Korea and other nation state threats that started to become very prolific in, in cryptocurrency. So what made you wanna go from China to um, Northern Africa is that, or? Yeah, we actually lived, we got to live in, in South Africa, which is an amazing place. I got to live in, in Cape Town for, for those years and absolutely loved it. But all the work that I was doing was in Northern Africa and the Middle East. Um, I, I went there originally on, a, on an assignment uh, working on a, a corruption investigation. And during that time, there were, there, it started to be some, some significant cyber events as well. 
the the Maersk cyber event was was very big and happened at that time as well as Saudi Aramco. <clears throat> um, uh, just so, uh, tell somebody who doesn't know what's the Maersk event? Yeah, what yeah. So um, Maersk was a that's the biggest a, shipping line in the world, right? Biggest shipping line in the world. They <clears throat> were attacked by one of the first ransomware, um, you know, major ransomware hacks and their their network was was encrypted fully encrypted and there were i think a third of the world's goods were out on some ship with no no idea where they were where um what was on those ships you know where those ships were going um and if you just think of the scale of maersk to think of their entire network encrypted is, is pretty astounding. There were mile long lines outside different ports like the Port of LA and in, in New York, New Jersey, um, because they just couldn't accept goods. They couldn't um, unload goods because they just didn't have any system to be able to do that. So it was a huge, huge cyber attack. Did the ransomware um, folks like get inside Maersk and then encrypt their system entirely and then say, you gotta pay us uh, for us to unencrypt your, your data? Exactly. Yeah, exactly what happened. And um, it got in through a uh, an accounting software um, similar to, to TurboTax in the US, um, but it was a, a small accounting software that um, somebody downloaded onto their machine and it infiltrated the, the whole network. They, they were down for, for quite a while and then they realized that one of the ports in Ghana, in Accra, Ghana, the the port itself had been experiencing a power failure during the time of the ransomware attack so they were actually offline and were still offline and they were um that was the only server that wasn't encrypted and it had the the keys that were able to rebuild the network oh, wow. and um that was crucial but then it was this um this sort of crazy race of trying to get the Ghanaians to fly this um, this hard drive up to to Europe, and they didn't have a visa because you need a visa as most African countries to fly into Europe, and that couldn't occur. So then it was somebody from Europe flying down to Ghana to fly it back up. Um, but say, it's not quite save, the same. The day. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's such a great story. Um, it's not quite the same as don't click on a link in an email, but also maybe just don't download random software. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of these, some of this malware will hide in, you know, in upgrades to, to software packages and things like that. And they'll sit dormant for a, a while. And that's what happened with this, this Maersk attack is it was a saw, it was accounting software that was personal use accounting software that was downloaded um it was a an upgrade package to that software that contained the malware that's so great and, and because that one server in ghana was offline they were able to basically tell the malware the ransomware people to go after yourself yeah they were able to rebuild the network yeah, off of that that server great. so <laughs> yeah. so what um so when you're in africa and you're doing corruption investigations it, I'm assuming you're not going in overnight like you you were in China. Was it a, like a different? Tell us about that and what what the investigations were like there. Yeah, yeah. So um, we we did a lot of um, 
again, on-site investigations, but a lot of the kind of illegal money that was flowing to governments in Africa was being hidden in, um, in things like water and petrol, um, basically resources that are, you can't go into a supply warehouse and count. <laughs> um, so you, you would look at something like a large um, mining operation or a large oil and gas operation that is allegedly providing huge amounts of money in bribes to the governments. Mm -hmm. um, and these are often, you know, unfriendly governments that aren't, aren't exactly doing, doing good things for their citizens. And um, they would, they would hide, you know, billions of dollars in consumable assets because it's really difficult to, to go in and say, well, they spent a hundred million dollars on bottles of water. Yeah. <laughs> there are no bottles of water, but they could have drank them all. Um, you know, they have thousands of people in this, in this mine. So it's, it's conceivable that, um, that they would have, you know, consumed all of these resources. And similarly with petrol, um, you would see hundreds of, of Toyota Helixes <laughs> at these sites as well. Um, so it was less technical in the way that they would make these payments, you know, much less digital and, and more consumable assets, you know, large assets that they could, they could transfer. Yeah. Um, what was it like in Africa with the, the financial system and the banking system and, and like it, it it's for people in the West, it's, it, it, it's kind of, you might not, know, you might know this or you might not, but pretty much everyone in Africa has a cell phone, but very few people have a, like, like the bank account, like banking system is almost kind of non-existent. Is that what you found at the time? That's, that's very true. It's um, South Africa is, is the more, you know, technical, technically capable country. And even there, it's not very well connected to the, the way that the rest of the global banking world works. Yeah, so I, I actually had my, my daughter when we were living in South Africa in 2017. And we had a nanny at the time who was from Zimbabwe, and she would get paid in cash at the end of each at the end of each week. And every few weeks, she would want to send money back to her family in Zimbabwe. And she would pay a taxi driver, basically a taxi driver, to drive uh, you know, a bag of cash back to her family. She had children in Zimbabwe, and she had a mother and other family members there. And that was how she was able to securely send money. And it was really the only way that she was able to securely send money. Wow. That's crazy. It's like remittance yeah. payment by taxi cab. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was less expensive than say Western Union and some of the other places where you can send, send cash and she didn't have a bank account or any other way of doing it. And were you there when M-Pesa started to spread and, and Safaricom was sort of the network and maybe you could tell people about that and like how that kind of changed that situation with the cash. Yeah, absolutely. So M-Pesa is an incredibly innovative digital payment system. It came about in um, around that same time and is predominantly in Kenya. And it was a bit of an experiment when it started out with, um, with Safaricom. It's the Kenyan telecom system. Almost every mobile phone in, in Kenya is on Safaricom. And um, it was, was really revolutionary because it, was, it allowed people to send money directly from from phone to phone but also you could go to any street corner and put cash into the system or take cash out really through a person sitting at a table who had a mobile phone 
you could bring them cash. They would put it into your account and then the person on the other end could take out that, that money. And, um, there were a couple things that I think were really interesting about it is it wasn't through smartphones. So while most of most people do have access to a cell phone, they don't have an iPhone. <laughs> they don't have a Samsung. Yeah. They still have, you know, a, a, it's called a feature phone. So it still has a keyboard. Yeah. It doesn't have any apps that we have. Um, so you have to be able to do this kind of digital payment transfer through through actually clicking on keyboard buttons, not through a smartphone app. And M-Pace allows you to do that. You basically press, you know, star one, one, one pound, and it brings up a couple of options, which you click through with your, your arrows and you click to send in the amount. Um, and that's the way that the Kenyan economy is largely running right now. I think the last number I, I heard is over half of um, the, you know, payments made um, in Kenya are in M-Pesa. And I did a lot of work there and people that I worked with that were getting paid, you know, the equivalent of like fairly senior level person salary in the U.S., they were choosing to be paid into their M-Pesa accounts. So they were electing to have their entire salary paid into their M-Pesa account as opposed to their their you know commercial banking account. Wow. So it's not just small payments. It's it's it could be relatively large what we consider sort of salary in the United States. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. getting, you know, a, a hundred thousand dollar equivalent salary getting paid into your M Pace account. So I think the misconception is that these mm-hmm. types of systems are just for, you know, somebody to send a few dollars back to their family who might live in a rural community that doesn't have access to the banking systems. But this one for me was really, really kind of mind changing and career changing because um, it illuminated that it's not just, you know, my nanny's trying to send money back to her family in, um, in Zimbabwe and has no other banking capabilities. It's for people who do have access to many other banking options, like some of the people I worked with in Kenya, but are choosing this form because it's, it's easier for them. It's, you know, a, a truly innovative way to, yeah. to transact That's <clears throat> that, where we get to in, in cryptocurrency. Right. That, was that the bridge for you into crypto? It, it was, yeah, it was a bridge for me into crypto at that same time. It was, you know, right around 2018. Um, I heard a, a podcast by Chainalysis, um, co-founder Jonathan Levin, mm-hmm. who was speaking on Planet Money about um, carbon, yeah, about Chainalysis. And you know, hearing hearing about Chainalysis at that time and what Chainalysis was doing and making cryptocurrency safe and you know building trust in that innovation was, um, yeah, it was just kind of a, a turning point for me in, in terms of cryptocurrency, because it was largely what I was seeing attempting to happen across Africa with solutions like M-Pesa, where there was um, a big emphasis to build trust into these these systems so that they can be more widely used. Yeah. But then from Africa, you went back to China again for a couple of years. I did. Yeah. I moved back to Hong Kong, um, which is sort of the the gateway to China. Um, And it's still referred to as one country, two systems, where it is all China, but they do operate under two different systems, political and financial. And um, Hong Kong is the, I kind of describe it in terms of the financial component. It's the, the Lego connector piece where 
Chinese banking systems and laws are vastly different to those of the Western world. They don't have the same um, regulations around, um, yeah, around various uh, corruption and fraud and things that we are required to monitor for. And so because of that, it can't directly transact with the Western banking world, but Hong Kong does have those in place. Yeah. And um, it, it operates as that mechanism for Chinese banks to connect directly with Western banks. And how had things changed once you got back to Hong Kong and in China with, I guess, cryptocurrency, like you said before, was now more widespread and, and it kind of changed the, the flavor of, of what was going on. Yeah, and Hong Kong was in uh, a flux as it was politically at that time and still is now, you know, there were, there were a lot of, there was the umbrella revolution, I don't know if you remember that, but it was the changing of the Hong Kong education system to the Chinese education system from the British and things like that were, were occurring. And so Hong Kong was uh, in flux as it was in, in terms of a political situation. There were protests all leading straight up to the COVID um, COVID pandemic where um, there was, they were fighting against the extradition law where if you violated a Chinese law but were living in Hong Kong, you could be extradited um, to China for that. And those are things like freedom of speech, um, you know, pretty important laws that in China, in Hong Kong, you're able to, to speak in certain ways. In China, you can't. So it was, it's a, just a huge turning point for the country as a whole. And then on top of that, we have cryptocurrency, we have um, the, you know, kind of nation state threats like North Korea and, and others that are have switched their MOs to, to dealing in cryptocurrency and laundering in cryptocurrency. And you have cryptocurrency just um, kind of sitting at the, this whole turning point in Hong yeah. Kong, China. So Help us understand, like, how does a country like North Korea <clears throat> as a nation state go about um, using cryptocurrencies or, um, you know, <clears throat> is it ransomware? Is it, you know, are they are they stealing from cryptocurrency um, businesses or exchanges or what, how are they involved? And, and what it, the interesting thing to me is, is here you've got a country that's basically protecting um, and enabling this activity, whereas, you know, obviously that's usually not the case. Yeah, exactly. So North Korea has, uh, they sort of entered the main stage in terms of cybercrime <laughs> um, with a couple of major hacks that they were involved in that are, you know, had wide ranging effects. So they there was were responsible for the, the WannaCry hack, um, which was a ransomware incident that um, it took down a lot of, of businesses. I think the, the um, national health system in the UK was, was most prominently affected, although it was a nation or a, a global, um, global attack. They were also responsible for the hack on Sony Pictures, uh, as well as Bank of Bangladesh. So at that time, they were becoming more prominent in in cyber crime, but they didn't really seem to have a specific MO. You know, WannaCry was ransomware, but they didn't really get paid all that much from it um, because the counter cyber intelligence people were able to uncover what was happening and stop it from happening. Sony Pictures had a very political 
um, attempt because of, of a particular movie that came out that, that displayed their leadership in a way they didn't want it to be displayed. And then Bank of Bangladesh was a, a true sort of theft of money, of fiat currency. And it wasn't successful because ultimately the, the laundering of the funds were stopped because there was um, a misspelling in the SWIFT transaction. So the money that was going to make it one more hop to them was, was stopped. And it was because there was a misspelling in the SWIFT transaction and um, it was returned to Bank of Bangladesh. So. Yeah, the traditional financial system comes to the rescue. <laughs> it did, it did in that case. And so um, they- I love how these little mistakes are so pivotal in these different stories, you know, like yeah. a in Ghana, a misspelled SWIFT transaction. It's just, you can't make that stuff up. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it uh, yeah, it comes down to, to little little errors in these. Yeah. In this you get the sense that um, the the North Korean hacking is homegrown, or are they kind of recruiting people and bringing them in from around the world, or is there anything known about that side of it? Yeah. So there's been a lot of research done around the the actual cyber criminals of North Korea, and many of them are living outside of North Korea. They are sanctioned to be there. They're allowed to be there by their government, um, and they're actually encouraged to be there by their government. They send they send money back to the their government. And they live in places like Thailand and Singapore and Hong Kong and Philippines and largely sitting in, in other countries around Asia. And they operate as, you know, government supported hackers. And they they leverage a lot of the cyber crime techniques that are are just they've been in existing for a long time. You know, but earlier in this um, this um, our interview, we I talked about, you know, don't click on a link in an email there. That's exactly how they're getting in They're They're using phishing attacks. They are leveraging social engineering. So they're building relationships with people at, at banks and at, um, crypto exchanges and places like that and leveraging that access. And they're doing that by being physically located in these in these places. And it's easier to do that if you are physically located in Japan or Philippines than if you're if you're sitting in North Korea. Yeah. Um, yeah, but North Korea does isolated. have a yeah, exactly. I mean North Korea has a strong um has its arms strongly around what's happening. So they are um they're strongly encouraging this activity and it's supporting the North Korean economy. And I think, yeah, did you guys at Chainalysis say that North Korea, through all these different various means, got something like $400 million last year? Yeah, $400 million just last year. So yeah. it's been, um, you know, it's been large, large amounts of money that have been stolen year over year. And it's allowing and that, them. Is it mostly to... crypto or are they also stealing fiat as well? Mostly crypto. Yeah. So they, they've become pretty successful in stealing crypto from these, these crypto exchanges and these crypto trading platforms. And do they tend to go for the big ones like Bitcoin and ether that are more liquid or is it, they'll just take anything they can get. They take anything they can get. So we've actually seen a trend where they are, they're stealing a what a much wider range um, earlier, they would go after in years past, they would go after some of the more, more liquid ones and the more stable ones like Bitcoin and Ether. But now we see they, they log into the 
the hot wallet of an exchange, for example, and they steal any number of ERC-20 tokens, um, they ultimately aim to convert them to Bitcoin and Ether because they're more stable in those those um, locations, but they they will steal anything that they can. Yeah. So we're now getting pretty much up to where you come to Chainalysis. Um, how did that come about? And, and tell us a little bit about, you know, it, it, to the extent you can, what, what are some of your the, the more interesting investigations or projects that you've worked on since being at Chainalysis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I joined Chainalysis in, in 2020 um, to really help to build out and head up the investigations team here. I was living in Hong Kong at the time still that I, I started speaking with Chainalysis about coming over. And um, there had just been a successful Department of Justice action against North Korea. And that sort of prompted me to get in touch with Chainalysis um, because they were, they were involved in that action. Um, and it was great to see some success against North Korea, finally, <laughs> in the crypto space. Yeah. And um, I, I joined Chainalysis. We were a pretty small team of investigators. We're now uh, about 45 people. Um, we are based around the world and um, we're tackling cyber threats ranging from nation states to um, darknet markets to counterterrorism <laughs> to, to all of the places that we, we try to root out the illicit activity happening in crypto. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier and you'd mentioned this, this cool project that I think Google had helped or had hired you guys to to check or to investigate where um, basically the Bitcoin blockchain was being used. Uh, can you can you kind of walk us through that one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the about four months ago, back in October of last year, Google was was attempting to disrupt a botnet called Gloopteba which is a Russian operated, um, very large botnet. And this one is different in that it leverages the, the blockchain to send instructions. So um, it's different from what we've seen in, in a lot of cyber crime. And it actually poses something that's pretty dangerous because um, it's leveraging you know, innovations and in blockchain to be able to, to stay alive, essentially. So the way that this botnet operates is there, there's with botnets, there's and ransomware and any malware. Um, it's all tied to what's called a command and control server. And that command and control server is what is responsible for sending instructions to the malware. Okay. It's the same, whether it's ransomware or botnet or any kind of malware. Basically and like the engine, right? The engine that is. That, that is propelling all of this bad stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It's the command center for, for all of this cyber, um, all of these cyber attacks and these, these servers sit on domains. So, you know, it's such and such.com. And, um, uh, the way that in the past we've been able to take down some of this malware is to go after the command and control server itself. So if you can take down that domain name, the malware will lose connection to that to that command center and it can no longer operate. Yeah, it's been and, severed, right, from the yeah. engine. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And Gloopteba is has built in a, a fail safe that at this time there, there is no way to completely take it offline because it is sending updated command and control information to the malware itself via the blockchain. 
So it's a, it's very technical in the way that it's operating, but it's essentially um, sending instruct sending transactions between a couple of hard coded Bitcoin transactions that sit within the malware. And then in a Bitcoin transaction, there is a field called op return. It's a, basically like a memo field. And within that op return field, it's, it's encrypting a new command and control domain. And anytime the malware loses connection to its command and control server, for whatever reason, could be that it was taken offline, it, you'll see a transaction occur on the blockchain, you'll see an updated <coughs> domain entered into that op return field, and then the malware will update to that domain name and it's back online. Wow, so the, the bad server gets cut then it sends a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain that has a new, it has instructions for the new server to then get up and running and then it's back. And, and is exactly. it, is it just moving some Bitcoin around on the, on the network and that's all it takes? That's all it takes. Yeah. And it, it doesn't actually send all that much. So it doesn't, it doesn't need a significant transaction for, for that to. It just needs the code to be. It just needs the transaction to be sent. And because yeah. the blockchain is publicly available, the malware actually actually scans the entire blockchain. So it has instructions within the malware that says, if you lose connection to the command and control server, scan the entire blockchain, look for transactions with these, these three Bitcoin addresses. And then it looks for that transaction. It reads the op return, which is encrypted. It decrypts the message in that op return field and it updates the command um, and control server and it's back online. Wow. So whereas before there was never really a permanent network that was publicly available, and now there is with like the Bitcoin blockchain. So that, that's, the, that's the new innovation here that allows this sort of like, um, it just can cycle, the malware can cycle and cycle and cycle and never kind of be um, killed like it was in the past. Exactly, exactly. And it, it's introducing uh, a dangerous use of the blockchain, really, and it could be leveraged in in other types of cyber crime. You know, ransomware as being a national security threat. Uh, ransomware operating in this way is is very dangerous. It well, I, not, a, a not that, like, yeah, not that the Bitcoin mining community or any mining community is is monolithic, but. Is there anything that the like a miner could do um, when they are, you know, could they be checking for this sort of inclusion when they're mining transactions in, in a block or something so that this doesn't get through? It's probably going to get through before <laughs> before that could occur, yeah. um, and it's still going to be sitting out there for it. So it sits in. Um, it, they actually set the rewards quite low so that it sits in the mempool and has a very long time to be read um, before it's picked up. So it's, um, it's sitting out there for quite some time and um, it's read, it's read very quickly. Yeah. And, and at this point, there's really nothing that can be done about this. At this point, there's nothing that can be done about this because the blockchain is decentralized. There's not an overarching authority that can say these transactions can't be sent from these addresses. And it's actually the outgoing transaction that sends the op return. So um, the idea of is flooding that address with, with transactions with you know a lot of different messages might confuse it. It's the outgoing transaction and the only 
person that has the ability to send an outgoing transaction from that address is the person in control of the wallet. Right. And they are able to unencrypt what's encrypted in there in the, in the memo field, basically. Yep. They can put whatever they want in that memo field. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Um, so the, it, it's really interesting to me as well. Um, the, the tools that you guys have are just getting better and better. And um, like, you're now able to, you know, just in the recent past, uh, if, if somebody wanted to try to hide cryptocurrency transactions, they'd go through something called a mixer where, you know, it, some coins would get mixed with a whole bunch of other different coins and then they get split and sent into different directions um, kind of fractionally. And that sort of like used to stop people dead in their tracks because it was really difficult to figure that out or reverse engineer it. But it now seems like that's it, it is possible to figure that out. Um, and I'm just curious, like, <clears throat> how is that possible now? Like, what is, what is it about like your technology that's increasing uh, and, and getting so much better? Uh, and is it, is it a case where on the other side, like, let's just say the bad guys, are they, you know, getting more and more sophisticated and you guys are getting more and more sophisticated and it's kind of this, you know, um, this, this increasing battle between you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both. So I joined Chainalysis because I really want to root out the illicit actors on the blockchain and Chainalysis has the, the best investigators, the best R&D team, the best um, product and data team in the world, by, by far is my true belief. Um, you know, starting with our founder, uh, Jonathan Levin, I mean, he is the original blockchain investigator. And through all of that just comes expertise that you can't, um, you can't just, you know, replicate overnight. And part of that is the, the building of, um, of tools that um, you know, rely on data that takes years to build. And um, those tools were able to stay ahead of the bad guys. You know, the bad guys are, are leveraging, um, uh, leveraging obfuscation techniques like mixers, you mentioned, swapping services, different types of coins, you know, a lot of different techniques. And our ability to stay ahead of them and build tools that allows us to to follow the money through that obfuscation is it's extremely valuable, and um, I think that's you know that's why that's why I joined Chain Analysis is you know, we don't see a ransomware incident where there's not mixers involved, um, and the harder to tackle um, cyber crime and the harder to tackle crypto crime these days is, is much more innovative by the illicit actors. They're using any, any means they can to obfuscate their trail. And, um, that's both in the funding of the addresses that they control, um, which is, we saw in Glooptaba, you know, Glooptaba wasn't a money laundering, um, money laundering incident, but by looking at the way that they're funding those transactions, um, those wallets that are making those transactions, that's a, that's a key piece of evidence to who's, who's in control of that wallet that's sending that transaction. Um, and those bad actors are always going to be using the most innovative ways to obfuscate their identity. So it's really important for us as investigators and as an investigation company to be able to provide those tools. Yeah. And I'm just curious, is it, um, is it like new partnerships that you guys are forging, you know, with maybe an exchange in a part of the world that you didn't 
you know, have a relationship with and you weren't, maybe you weren't sharing, they weren't sharing data with you or, or something like that, that is allowing you to get more sophisticated and, and better like um, granularity here? Or is it also the actual technology and, and what you're able to do on the forensic side that's, that's improving? So it's largely the data. So none of this runs without the, the blockchain data itself. And um, the Chainalysis um, participation in various blockchain networks um, has built a, a vast amount of data that just can't be replicated. So um, that allows us to build tools that can, um, can look through this data and analyze it in a certain way that we're able to, to break down these obfuscation attempts. And um, that is, so it really comes down to the power of the data. We do build substantial partnerships with crypto exchanges, um, financial institutions involved in crypto. All of that, you know, we, we do alongside law enforcement where there's legal process involved. Um, and that, that community coming together as a whole to tackle cybercrime is also a, a massive way that we're able to all work together to, yeah. to tackle this threat. So because, because all these blockchains we're talking about, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana, they're all public, you got you can basically access them and run nodes or and then have that data at your disposal to, to help build the tools that you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. And the the bulk of that data and bringing in you know substantial amounts of data plus the historical data that we've we've collected is what allows us to build these tools. Um, we have an incredible R&D team, research and development team that is, is always throwing us new and innovative tools um, that blow my investigators' minds. <laughs> um, <laughs> that must be really nice. <laughs> it is nice. And yeah. part of that comes down to their, their just deep expertise in this space. It's it not like that. in James Bond when he goes in and they show him all the new weapons that he's going to take with him. You know? That is exactly what this person, I won't, I won't mention him by name because I'm not sure he wants to be mentioned by name, but there, there's a team of, of people that, that work for him and that is very much the, <laughs> yeah. um, the James, James Bond, um, yeah, and, tool yeah, developer. I love, I love this too, that it's a function of the openness of these networks and the, you know, the open source and the fact that this is all public. And it's something that I wish more people understood about blockchain because, and crypto in general, they think it's all anonymous and hidden and, you know, people are doing this in the shadows and, I guess there's some of that, but honestly, like you're saying, everything's out there in the open. And if you know how to look for it, and if you know to how to follow the clues, you can, you know, it's very hard to get away with stuff uh, in this, in this world. Exactly. And I mean, I've been, I've been working in cybercrime and financial crime investigations for, for almost 20 years, going back to, you know, looking at actual receipts of swift transactions and things like that. And the, the, speed in which we've been able to evolve in with tools that can combat this and cryptocurrency is so much faster than we've been able to evolve over, you know, decades of trying to tra tackle fiat crime. Um, and that is largely because of the, the global decentralized nature of blockchain and the ability to see anything real time um, on the blockchain and um, all work together in tackling that. I think the other thing that's really incredible about 
the cryptocurrency community is that we all come together in, in times of, of greater threat. You know, we look at what's happening now in Ukraine and just the, the community effort. You know, Chainalysis is working side by side with our competitors who work side by side with all of, everybody in the crypto space to, to do everything we can. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really unusual as well. And part of that is just the nature of innovative tech and, you know, innovative financial, um, you know, financial tools that are out there to, to come together in that way, rather than, um, you know, keeping things just to themselves. Yeah, that's, that's like the founding ethos almost of crypto in general that I, I love. And I, I do agree with you that it's, it's rare to see that in other industries where it's mostly siloed and, you know, people are very intent on keeping their secrets there to themselves. And, and this is kind of the opposite of that, which is, is very powerful to see. It is, it is. And you see it in, in hacking, you know, stolen funds incidents all the time. We'll, we'll get contacted by a crypto company who's had an incident where money's been stolen from them through some kind of hack. By the time they've gotten in touch with us through, you know, whatever way they know, We've we already we've already investigated it because we we've seen on Reddit or on Twitter that the events have occurred and of course we're going to jump in and investigate. We don't care that someone's you know paying us or not. Where we're very um, you know we're just very passionate no. about. And tell me about it. Being a reporter in this space has been so weird because it's like it's almost impossible to get a scoop because people just put stuff out you know immediately. <laughs> on Twitter and like, or wherever, like you said, Reddit, it doesn't matter. It just goes out and then you're reacting to it rather than, you know, it's a, it's, you know, reporters love to get scoops. They love to tell people things they don't know. And, and in crypto, people are just like, no, I'm going to tell everybody right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and reporters are left yeah. scrambling to put a story <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's very, it's very unique. And it's also just very, you know, it, it makes, I mean, many of us very feel very positive about the future of yeah, this technology. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to leave this, Aaron. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Really, really enjoyed this. And um, I think, you know, thank you for what you've done over all these years. And uh, may uh, you long continue and, and good luck at Chainalysis. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for being interested in what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Definitely. Have a good day. You too. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day. <laughs>